Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. Today I have the honor and pleasure to welcome two Trade for Peace champions, Ms. Pamela Cook-Hamilton and Mr. John Denton. Pamela is the Executive Director of the International Trade Center. Prior to that, she was the Director of the Division on International Trade and Commodities at UNCTAD. John is the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce. He also served for two decades as Partner and Chief Executive Officer of Coors Chambers Westgarth, Australia's leading independent law firm. Pamela, John, welcome to Trade for Peace. Thanks so much, Axel. Really appreciate it. Great to be here. Pamela, John, thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace. Starting with you, Pamela, I would like us to start our conversation today with a question I ask all of our guests. What does Trade for Peace mean to you? Thanks, thanks, Axel. I think it's a very important question. For me, there's an inextricable link between economic security and social security and by extension, peace. And so expanding opportunities for economic empowerment and inclusion can help boost standards of living, support community development, and of course, encourage lasting peace. And that's why I believe the work of ITC to support trade in conflict-afflicted areas is complementary to any peace-building process. So I'll just stop there. Thank you. And to you, John, what does trade for peace mean to you? Oh, thanks very much. And as I said in my opening, it's great to be with you all. Um, from my perspective and the perspective of the International Chamber of Commerce, we're absolutely committed to the notion of trade for peace and increasing collaboration globally. We were founded by business leaders who actually wanted to ensure that what was seen in the First World War would never be seen again and that we should work as business together to see if we could actually forge stronger linkages to ensure that we could trade in peace. Indeed, the first line of our constitution is that international commercial exchanges are conducive to both greater global prosperity and peace among nations. We've evolved from there in terms of what we do, and now we act as a bridge between the real economy and international policymaking. And what we bring into international policymaking is the clear view of the real economy, is that we actually better served by a peaceful existence in which we can grow the global economy and ensure prosperity and security and safety for all our citizens. Thank you, John. To you, uh, Pamela, you are a champion for women economic empowerment and trade openness. Can you tell our listeners about the work of ITC and how it supports fragile and conflict-affected countries? Thanks, Axel. I think ITC interventions seek to empower those in conflict-afflicted zones, as well as our stakeholders, and it's diverse in terms of our engagement. We work with rural smallholder farmers, women entrepreneurs, and refugees from Latin America to Asia. And for these vulnerable groups, they face many barriers to economic autonomy. 
And what our programs seek to do is to equip them with the necessary tools to start and maintain their businesses and with a view to connecting them to international markets. And so we feel it's imperative that we rebuild international cooperation for those who are most vulnerable. MSMEs, especially those led by women, youth and other vulnerable groups are disproportionately affected, we find, by war, conflict and other crises such as COVID-19. And I think that the statistics have been clear on the impact of COVID-19 on women, on refugees, on those who are most vulnerable. In addition to which, armed conflict creates unstable economic conditions. It disrupts supply chains, it damages valuable infrastructure to trade and destroys livelihoods. And we've seen what's been happening in Gaza just this week. Supporting communities in conflict-affected zones can promote economic resilience in unstable circumstances. And so we believe trade and investment can support community development, foster solidarity, and they're essential to lasting peace. So we need to build the resilience of MSMEs in fragile states, which then contributes, of course, to the resilience of the overall economy. Thank you, Pamela. And the same goes to you, John. Can you tell our listeners about the work of the ICC? How does it operate as a bridge between policymaking and business in fragile and conflict-affected countries? Well, first of all, we are there. I mean, we are the world's largest business organization. I think people on this call may know that we're the institutional voice of 45 million businesses globally. And when we talk about globally, we are actually in the developed world, the developing world, we're in the peaceful world and the world which is in transition, we're in the stable world and the world which is unstable. We are there supporting the business communities as they seek to actually create environments where they can create prosperity for their families and improve the lives of their communities. We're there. The organization has key values and we are pioneering, we're generous, we're liberated and we're connected. And we take all those values and we play them out into what we do. We aim to grow the economy, revitalize trade and advance sustainability. And we actually, in the context of developing and fractured states and actually vulnerable states, we're actually working to try and improve the opportunity to ensure that there is a market economy which enables people to achieve the outcomes that we globally seek, which is improved prosperity and opportunity for all. That's what we do. And part of that is actually through listening, to be really frank with you. We actually have created what's called regional action networks. We did that in the middle of COVID. For example, in Africa, we now bring together 47 countries in a regional action network call, the whole idea of which is to ensure that we're hearing the priorities they have. We're then breaking that regional action group down into sub-regions because nuance is actually important. We, we believe in global influence, regional relevance, and local impact. So we try to do all that to actually end up having local impact. And now in terms of local impact, we are creating concepts called centers of entrepreneurship. We're in the midst of working that through at the moment in Beirut, uh, which is a challenged environment. But we went there because the local community asked us to go there because they'd lost trust in government and, frankly, intergovernmental organisations. The people they trusted was business. And so they asked us if we would go as a show of confidence to the citizens there that the world had not forgotten them, and we have, and we've created a centre of entrepreneurship. We're now in the process of creating similar centres, one in Accra, one in Lagos, another in uh, South Africa, and there'll be two more in Africa. We'll also be doing a number in Latin America. So we not only talk about peace, we actually create and seek to enable policies that can support peaceful environments and also improve the prospects for people. And then what we do is create the ability for people to learn, get the skills, get the capabilities and apply them. That's how the ICC bridges the real economy 
in troubled state, challenged states and an outcome which hopefully is peaceful for the citizens there. Thank you, John. What can you tell us about the ICC Centers for Entrepreneurship? What role do you think entrepreneurship play in building sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries? Oh, thanks for much. Great question. You know, it's really interesting. What drove me to create this platform, which is now in the process of going global, having started two pilots, one in Istanbul and then the second in Beirut, was actually irritation and annoyance. Uh, when I kept on hearing, from, particularly from development agencies, that we're going to find jobs for people. Our job is to find jobs for people. But I said, you don't actually understand what's happening on the ground in some of these fragile economies. There actually are no jobs. What you actually have to do is help people build the skills and the ability to find a way to create a meaningful existence for themselves and their families in troubled places. That's entrepreneurialism. We also want them to actually be supporters of market economies, don't we? Aren't we always say that market economies are actually fundamental to actually building uh, resilient economies and ensuring growth and defeating uh, famine, all these things. You don't have famine when they're functioning market economies. So you actually have to build constituencies that support it. So what I thought, rather than debating the point, prove the point, we will actually create centres in challenging environments that will enable individuals who cannot find jobs, have the skills and ability and access to opportunity to be responsible basically for their own futures, for themselves and their families. And yes, there may well be jobs, so I'm overstating it, but that was kind of what was driving me crazy. And so we started with two pilots. We started, frankly, where it was kind of easiest because we could crowd in. And just listening to Pamela before, I'm always so impressed with what Pamela and her team does and do and will do. You know, our focus actually there was particularly on using Istanbul as a hub for Eurasia and focusing opportunities for female SMEs and creating opportunities for female owners and operators of SMEs because we just saw that there wasn't enough attention going on there. And we wanted to learn a little bit too. And we could quite re easily crowd in private sector partners and others to play with us, to actually help us build this. In um, Beirut, is more complex because of the collapse of government. And earlier I mentioned one of the reasons we went specifically to Beirut was because the local civil society and business community asked us to go there for our second set of entrepreneurship. Because of this issue is there are no jobs. And frankly, if you're a male, a young male between the age of about 16 to 32, no matter what, you're kind of stuck because you're on a watch list if you want to try and get out and go emigrate and things like that. So you're actually kind of stuck. No one's investing to build jobs, so you're going to have to do it yourself. Is it really in our interest to have whole swathes of people are sitting around without the opportunities to build careers and build opportunities for them? No. So that's another reason why we're in Beirut. What we really do there is four things with our centers of entrepreneurship. We inspire leadership. We actually also in the process of digitizing. We have a campaign which is to digitize five million SMEs and micro SMEs. But we build the skills and capabilities to participate in using digitization to create business models, which sounds a little more sophisticated than it really is. But how do you actually take a digital platform and make it into effectively a money earner? That's really what it is and how you actually improve your prospects and how you link it up with payment systems and things like that. The third thing is actually we help to scale up startups because, you know, there are lots of good ideas out there. Of course, not every good idea is a great idea. But one of the things people challenge with sometimes is even if they've got a great idea, they can't get visibility if you're in an emerging market. So one of our jobs is to help you get visibility and join you up with our global networks and our global initiatives around startups, et cetera. And the last actually came out of my workshops that we were running in Ghana 
where we had fabulous female SME uh, owners from Nigeria, actually, in the farming sector, who were telling us about the challenge that they had in getting to and from markets. And the challenges weren't transportation. They were the risk of being raped and of being attacked. That actually was an inhibitor. That's what I call a non-tariff barrier. And no one talks about these things. And so our view is that, my God, we need to actually build a stream into what we're doing to reflect our desire and make a clear statement that we believe in inclusive entrepreneurialism. And that includes LGBTIQ, and that includes people who suffer in terms of access to full abilities and things like that as well. So they're the four areas that actually comprise our centers of entrepreneurship's focus. And now we're building out in Africa, we're launching in Latin America this year, and simultaneously we're opening up an opportunity in Asia. We'll be starting in Jakarta in Asia. And we've actually just in the final stages of putting together a roadmap for a set of entrepreneurship in Central Europe, that there'll be more. So our aim is to have this as an available way to help people build skills. And hopefully it's an open platform and scalable. We'll be able to bring together lots of people who do lots of different things in order to stop the fragmentation, bring it together, create a platform that people can use to actually bring about our aim, which is entrepreneurialism and helping people build livelihoods for themselves and not being told what to do. Thank you, John. You are listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. We will be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Trade for Peace. Now, uh, Pamela, on numerous occasions, you have spoken about the inclusion and participation of all stakeholders in the economy and trade policy. How do you see this manifesting itself in fragile and conflict-affected state? You know, one of the things that we recognize is that creating an inclusive business ecosystem goes a long way in enabling entrepreneurs to actively participate in the economy and also to advocate for the interests of their communities. And so their voice is vital in a peacemaking process. ITC works with the government and private sector, for example, in Iraq. And under this EU-funded project, we develop or we aim to develop Iraq's agriculture and agri-food value chain that have been suffering, of course, from a long period of conflict and ongoing structural challenges. And so this project contains a specific component to support Iraq's WTO accession process and how this can be used as a catalyst for domestic reforms. And Iraq's commitment to the WTO accession process reflects the country's desire to achieve a peaceful and economically robust country. Second example is we also work with Afghanistan to realize a vision of its national export strategy, which was developed under the EU-funded project Advancing Afghan Trade. And the core motto of this strategy is peace through prosperity, prosperity through trade, which speaks directly to what we're talking about right here, Axel, um, and is part of your vision. So the aim is to spur growth and job creation by boosting export capacities of the country's private sector, stepping up trade with regional and global markets. And peace is at the core of this collaborative and inclusive project. A third project in Latin America, the Colombia Puede project. ITC works in this high conflict region to support smallholder farmers in rural areas. And through this project, we've helped over 2000 smallholder farmers. And it's been so successful that they're seeking to extend it because it has been so instrumental in helping the peace process in Colombia. 
And then finally, for persons displaced by conflict, we have the Refugee Employment and Skills Initiative, the RECI. And this provides innovative trade-led and market-based solutions to create jobs and generate income for refugees. It's a question of dignity. You know, it's one thing for people to be displaced. It's another thing for them to be able to at least earn and create income in the space that they are at the moment they're there. And we work with their host communities to build self-reliance and foster economic resilience. So RAISI basically tailors its activities with targeted private and public partnerships. We build strong market connections and we bring capacity building to the next level through the relevant network connections and mentorship. So we're trying to ensure with this approach that RESI ensures newly acquired skill sets translate into actual income gains and job creation. Thank you, Pamela. John, on that point, how do you see the inclusion of stakeholders in the economies of fragile and conflict-affected states supporting lasting peace? Also, how can development partners and donors best support the integration of marginalized groups? Oh, thanks very much, Axel. Uh, I suppose you're hitting there on one of the driving forces of my engagement at the ICC. It's a genuine belief that public-private partnerships can work, but they're not working generally because not enough attention made to what true collaboration really means here. We have a habit noticing, oh, so I tend to notice that there's a lot of yelling at each other or talking across each other, but not a lot of actual collaboration with each other. And it struck me that one of the roles of the ICC, given we have a seat at the United Nations, is we should use that to actually almost be an honest broker, a high trust player, to bring together the public and private partnerships, and then to see if we can create a model with collaboration which we can scale, particularly uh, in developing countries and more fragile economies. We've done that with what we call the Global Alliance on Trade Facilitation. We're doing that at the moment with UNDP, in the creation of what we call the global facility, which sounds a bit kind of mysterious, I must say, but I can unpack that a little bit. But on the Global Alliance for Trade Facilitation, it's actually really important for, well, I mean, look at the wonderful work the ITC does, this this issue of enabling uh, developing and emerging economies access to the full benefits of open trade by facilitating some of the crunchier bits of getting goods and services across their borders. The Global Alliance on Trade Facilitation, what it actually does is we allow individual players, including business and government, to identify the pressure points or the pain points in, for example, cross-border movements and customs, what's stopping things happening, so why are things being held up. The inefficiencies from that are actually diminishing the capacity for economic returns, and the inability to, inability to get economic returns harms the ability to raise uh, revenue and things like that for governments. What we do is bring together the development partners then with government, with the private sector, with an identified problem to solve, and that's what we work on. And we're actually working on it, and it's working, which is the amazing thing. So we actually have ongoing projects which are solving issues to do with phytosanitary in terms of inhibitions to crossing borders. We have others about how you digitise customer services in developing economies. That's public progress. And that's something I think has been missing from some of this equation. Lots of people talking well about each other, but not enough outcomes which actually enabling improvements on the ground. And similarly with the UNDP, 
creating the, this idea of a global facility. The idea really is to create some fun, get together some funds, which we can then use in emerging economies, particularly in COVID, as a facility to invest in a pilot basis to try and improve the prospects of some of the innovations that are around or some of the improvements that are around are moving along. So it's really an impact investing kind of light approach to doing these things. And that's public-private partnerships. The reason I like it is because it's kind of crunchy. There's actually something has to happen to unleash the funding. And that something has to happen, which is an impact. And the impact has to be positive in line with the SDGs, in line with resilience, but actually it's improving people's lives along the way. So for me, public-private partnerships, that's the leitmotif for the way I like to operate. But importantly for the ICC, bringing effectiveness to public-private partnerships has been almost, uh, I think, our life's mission. And now we found a model we want to scale it because it actually works. Thank you, John. Now, speaking of COVID, I would like us to turn to the uh, pandemic. As you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has seriously impacted all economies. And while the rapid development of vaccines offers a glimmer of hope, the logistics of vaccine distribution and, and the financial constraints impedes widespread access to vaccine, particularly for fragile and conflict-affected countries. As you know, trade plays a key role in ensuring worldwide vaccine access. And this is why the WTO DG Okonjo Oela recently called on WTO members to take actions in responding to this crisis. In your views, what can international organizations do to ensure worldwide vaccine access and equity? I would like to start with you, Pamela. Uh, thanks. I think that's a very important question and the whole discussion about the IP waiver and, and where this is going. But I think for us, you know, vaccine supply chains are global in nature and no country alone has the ability to manufacture all the inputs. And so this makes the supply chain especially vulnerable to export restrictions. And we saw this at the beginning of the crisis. ITC has been tracking these restrictions and other temporary measures since the onset of the COVID-19 crisis through our market access map providing global updates of trade measures, especially related to medical supplies. And the objective of this initiative is to improve the transparency in international trade and market access requirements. And it seeks also to urge countries to refrain from or reduce trade restrictions, especially to avoid what we call vaccine nationalism. And just to give you an example, we've done daily update of the COVID-19 trade measures. Ecuador, you know, bans the export of medical oxygen that was on in May 3rd. India waiving its import duties on vaccines that was April 20, 2020. So what we've done is we've tried to go through and just track what has been happening and provide the kind of information that we feel is necessary for people to keep abreast of what's happening and also for countries to be prepared. What about you, John? Uh, what can international organizations do to ensure worldwide vaccine access and equity? Well, first of all, make certain it's a top-line priority. I think it's fair to say that until Dr. Ngozi took on the reins of the WTO, many of us would have comfortably and unfortunately argued that the WTO had been silent on issues to do with the pandemic. They did not use the full force of that institution in a way that I think could have been more constructive. Uh, and I've said that. This is not news. I've said that before. I've said that to uh, Dr. Ngozi's predecessor. I also think it's absolutely appalling that the issue of the pandemic has not actually hit the Security Council. It's just mind-boggling. And actually, if you look at the tentative references, even at the G20. So I do think, first and foremost, this is a high priority. This, first and foremost, must be a top priority. I shifted all the organs I have within the ICC to focus on the pandemic and dealing with it in March uh, last year. 
uh, because my view is that this is a fundamental shift. It's having fundamentally negative consequences for the global world, and we need to do everything we can as an organisation which is committed to enabling peace, prosperity and opportunity for all, none of which you can have without safety from this uh, pandemic uh, as a top priority. I sit on the COVAX Council, so a fundamental issue there is that COVAX needs to be fully funded. It's not. It's at least $20 billion short, which, by the way, sounds like a lot of money, but it's a drop in the ocean when you compare the stimulus packages that have been released by global governments and regions, uh, particularly in the developed north. Uh, We argued at the ICC that you have to stop seeing funding COVAX in developed countries as an act of charity. It's an economic issue. We actually redefined that debate because we've proven that failure to actually bring to an end the pandemic on a global basis will have negative economic consequences and create up to a $9.2 trillion hole or damage to the global economy, more than half of which will be hit in the developed economy. And for no particular, I mean, these are not particularly surprising reasons, and you can see it now play out in India, that as long as the pandemic continues, it will continue to mutate and create new strains and keep pushing back. And so if you want to, if you're serious about global economic growth and restoring it, if you want to revitalise trade, you actually have to bring the pandemic to an end. And so focusing on that as a critical issue, not as a charity issue, We've proposed a global governance model, which is we call it ICC, the ICC Global Clearinghouse, which we will surrender to a global organisations such as the WTO, WHO. But the lack of ideas about governing this, because you need to have transparency over the supply chain, where the pain points are so you can remove it. You need to actually look at where there's underutilised capacity, so matchmaking, and you need to look at new ways of funding these things. As I said, it's hard enough to fund COVAX, which is $20 billion, but we're going to be talking about how do we fund continued investment in the intellectual innovation required to build new vaccines, not just for COVID, but for other pandemics. We need to come up with some new public-private models for doing that, bring pension funds in, et cetera, as well. These are three key elements that will actually improve production. And for heaven's sake, can we stop these ridiculous and poisonous export barriers on the very therapeutics that are needed. You can see that in India now, where countries which on the one hand claim to be helping have actually got barriers, put up barriers in allowing some of the therapeutics needed to treat patients to flow across borders. And that can be done. Governments must stop imposing export barriers on the therapeutics needed to ensure people are properly cared for during this COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you, John. I would like us to turn to the role of the WTO as it pertains to the accession process. And I would like to start with you, Pamela. In your view, what do you see the WTO process in terms of economic growth and in fostering sustainable peace? Let me start with our work with your country and where you were the representative um, and the minister at the time. I think our work with Liberia clearly demonstrates the positive impact of the WTO accession process. Um, Our support, ITC support for Liberia's WTO accession during your tenure as Minister Addy. (laughs) Economic development and the ability to maintain peace is testament to the contribution that closer integration in the multilateral trading system can have. In the context of Liberia's WTO accession, we worked with Liberia to create a roadmap for trade development. It also sought to revive and empower the private sector, especially MSMEs led by women and youth, and also bring the voice of business into the process. 
And today we've continued our cooperation through our project to boost Liberia's tourism sector in the post-COVID context. And of course, the major, and, and this is true for many of the other countries who are also dependent on tourism, which has been decimated by COVID. You know, we seek to improve the policy environment and institutional capacity, develop new tourism destinations around surfing and other historical and natural attractions, targeting promotion and advocacy, and campaigns to promote tourism to international, regional, and domestic markets. But we believe that the insertion and integration into the multilateral process is also part of how we sustain peace and foster economic growth. Thank you, Pamela. And I'm looking forward to seeing the first surfing competition in Liberia. (laughs) (laughs) Now, John, as you know, the Trade for Peace program recently held the first meeting of the newly established Trade for Peace Network last month, which you played a key role uh, as a participant. The goal of the network is to create a forum for collaboration and coordination between representatives of trade, peace, and humanitarian communities. As a member of the Trade for Peace Network, how do you envision future collaborations between your respective organizations and the Trade for Peace program? John, I'd like to start with you, and then Pamela, if you can add on to that. Thank you. Oh, great question. From our perspective, there are really three key areas where I think we can create some value by working together, more closely together. The first is political engagement. The second is really around public dialogue. And the third is around training and capability building. Now, looking at political engagement, as I said in my opening comments, when you your first question, we are everywhere. We are actually often, you know, all politics is local. We're also local. So we have chambers of commerce in almost every single country. We have more than one, often we have multiple of them. We can use those chambers of commerce who are committed to the ideal of peace and actually ensuring peaceful existence for all as partners in this. And that's something we really want to do. And we can therefore see the advocacy role that we can play there. Obviously, we sit at the UN, we sit at, I mean, we sit at the G20, we sit all over the place. So we'll use our role there for political engagement. Public dialogue, it was really interesting for me how just creating the workshops we've been creating together as part of creating our centres of entrepreneurship, we're bringing together three, 400, sometimes 600 SMEs and ACRA, which actually bring in people from uh, Lagos and, and Nigeria and elsewhere. In Beirut, it brings people in from Syria, et cetera. We are talking there with civil society, not just the business community, really a civil society, about the importance of trade for peace. That's really what we're doing. We may not call it that, but that's actually what we're doing. And by osmosis, I mean, people see that this is something that's really important for success of their local communities. So we'll be doing that as we move forward as well. And third is tra- training and capacity building. So said we have an element within the Centre of Entrepreneurship, which is inclusive entrepreneurialism. And of course, from our perspective, that's a really key element of ensuring trade for peace, ensuring everyone can trade, everyone can be involved in this is very important. And so we will bring that in terms of training capability, but we can do more. We work with the ITC on some common trading training platforms. Maybe we just need to focus on a little bit more about how we can create something specific here which we can deploy. We are very open to using all our platforms in order to pursue the lofty aim, but actually the shared aim of enabling peace, prosperity and opportunity for all, because that's what we're about, what we're about at the ICC, it's what the ITC is about, and it's what Trade for Peace Group is about as well. And to you, Pamela? Yeah, I think ITC, uh, we're very committed to this process, and that's why I decided to attend the very first meeting myself. 
our intention is to see how we can support the Trade for Peace program, first of all, by ensuring that we align ITC's interventions with WTO objectives, with a view, of course, to supporting the WTO intent and, and outreach. Uh, Secondly, we want to lend ITC's practical expertise on the ground to support businesses, and we've signed an MOU with ICC, and we'd love to work more in collaboration with them as much as possible. We also want to lend ITC's expertise to policymakers to create the national strategies to promote economic development. Fourthly, we want to strengthen the voice of the private sector, especially MSMEs in the Trade for Peace program in collaboration with ICC. And of course, mainstreaming Trade for Peace principles in ITC projects, especially in fragile and conflict-affected countries. So we are ready to start and to stand ready to rebuild communities and secure a future for our children and our grandchildren. Thank you, Pamela, and thank you, John. We look forward to the continued collaboration with the Trade for Peace uh, program. I would like to end this episode with one last question that I'd like to ask both of you. In one word, what does Trade for Peace mean to you and why? Pamela, would you like to start? Ah, Sure. Uh, Empowerment. And why? Because I believe that trade as an integral input to economic development leads to greater peace, greater stability, greater security, not just for people locally, but for the entire world. And so for me, it's about empowerment of people to live in security, in peace, and to grow as as individuals. And to you, John? Um, Dignity. If we can uh, enable people to grow their lives and improve their livelihoods through peaceful cooperation, peaceful commerce, we will improve their dignity and never underestimate the power of dignity when it's applied to an individual, what it means to them, both at a psychological level, an emotional level, and in relationship to their communities and their families. Dignity is incredibly important that will come out of a consequence of trading in a peaceful manner. Pamela, John, You are truly championing the essence of the Trade for Peace program through the work of your respective organizations. Thank you both for joining us today. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into Episode 7 of the Trade for Peace podcast on business and peace. I am your host, Axel Addy. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. Subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. For more episodes, visit us at www.tradeforpeace.podbean.com. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thanks for listening to Trade for Peace. Trade for Peace.